love God. As we open up your words, as we study this really important part of Scripture over the course of the next few weeks together, we ask as the disciples ask, teach us how to pray. Lord God, we want to know intimacy with you, maybe deeper than we ever have before. So come, Lord Jesus, as we talk about your text, we pray we will hear your voice in the midst of everything which we've discussed. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we do kick off our latest sermon series, which I've entitled Living on a Prayer. And over the course of the next few weeks together, we're going to be opening up the Lord's Prayer together. And in doing so, my hope and my heart and my prayer is that as we look at this text together, we will grow more in love with God and we will get to know him on a more deeper and intimate level than we ever have before. As I said last week, it doesn't matter if you're 8 or 88 years old in this place, there is more of God that you can know than you have experienced up until this point in your life and on your journey. If you ask probably any Christian what the most important aspect of faith is, I would guess that 99 out of a hundred would tell you the most important thing about our faith and the most important aspect of it is prayer. After all, we talk about that old cliche in church all the time, don't we? Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And just like any relationship, relationship is always built upon conversation. I don't know about you, but I really don't like answering my phone when my phone rings and a number comes up which I don't recognise. When I was in Honiton, the church secretary at the time thought it was going to be a good idea to put my personal mobile number on our outside notice board. And as a result of that, over the course of a few years, I have one or two really weird phone calls from people having a laugh because they got my number and decided to see who I was. So every time my phone rings and it's a number that I don't recognise, my instant thought and my instant reaction is, oh, who is this right now? Who is calling me up right now? Who is bringing me up to moan or have a go that I don't know. Having said that, when my phone rings, there's a number of someone I have a relationship with, even more so when it's someone who rings up who I actually like. I love it. I enjoy it when a friend phones me up and I can have a conversation with them. You see, the way we communicate with other people all depends on the depth of relationship that we have with them. So, for example, if you are in this place today and you are married, the way that you communicate with your spouse is probably going to be different from the way that you communicate with the pizza delivery guy. Although, I have to say, I love it when people bring pizza to my door. It makes my day. But the likelihood is that when a delivery guy turns up at your door to give you some pizza, you're not going to spread your life story and tell them everything about yourself. But if you have a more intimate relationship with someone, your spouse, the chances are you're going to open up to them a little bit more. You see, the more intimate a relationship the more we're willing to trust a person and open up to them. And what's true of our earthly relationships is also true of our relationship with God. The more we talk to him, the more we open up to him, the more we commune with him, the more we get to know him, the more we understand his heart and his will for our lives and where he wants us to go and what he wants us to do. And yet prayer is such a funny thing, isn't it? Because the truth is, it's so bad at it. It's true, isn't it? It's played out in the life of church all the time. It's played out in the life of this church. It's played out in the life of every church that I have been a part of. You can put on a prayer event within the church and you can guarantee that it will be the worst attended event 
of everything that church does. And people will make all kinds of excuses. Oh, it's the time of day that it is. It just doesn't fit in. It doesn't matter what time of day you do it. Generally, a prayer event within church seems to draw the least amount of people to it. And if we were to look at this account of the Lord's Prayer from the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 11, what we see is Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer to his disciples as a result of a direct question. They say to him, Lord, teach us how to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Let me ask you something this morning. Jesus was stood in front of you in the flesh, in bodily form. What one question would you ask him to teach you to do? Lord, teach me to do miracles. Lord, teach me to heal the sick. Lord, teach me to be more loving. Teach me to be more compassionate. What would you ask of Jesus? The disciples, they don't ask any of these questions. They say, Lord, teach us how to pray. Why? Because prayer is not necessarily something which comes naturally to us. And I would suggest that the reason that prayer doesn't come naturally to us is a result of the fall. If we were to look at the book of Genesis together this morning, what we would see is that a man and woman who were created for a deep and intimate relationship with God, but then temptation takes them astray. They listen to the voice of the servant, serpent who says, you don't need God. You can be your own God. Why would you want to commune with this God who puts these rules in place? And as a result of listening to the serpent, brokenness entered humanity, sin entered the world. Our fleshly desires took over and communion became something with God, became something which was no longer natural to us. That's why we see in the account of Gethsemane, for example, just before Jesus is about to go to the cross, Jesus says to his disciples, listen, I've got to go and I've got to speak with my father, but what I want you to do is to stay here and to pray for me. And Jesus goes off and he spends time with his father. And when he comes back, what does he find? He finds the disciples asleep. And he says to them, could you not have stayed awake for just one hour and prayed? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Is that your experience of prayer? I know it's my experience of prayer. All too often, I really want to pray. I long and I desire to be a man of deep, intimate prayer with Almighty God. And yet, there are times in my life where I'm so bad at it. And we're looking at this account of the Lord's Prayer together from the Gospel of Matthew. And the teaching on the Lord's Prayer that he gives here comes part of a wider set of teaching just after the Sermon on the Mount. And essentially, what Jesus points out in Matthew chapter 6 is that if we were to put everything that he spoke about in Matthew chapter 5, and I want to encourage you to go away and read Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. If we were to put everything into practice that we read in Matthew chapter 5, what happens is that our hearts and ourselves become transformed to be more like Jesus, and what follows that is external acts of righteousness. And Jesus kicks off this passage in Matthew chapter 6 by saying, listen, When you practice external acts of righteousness, when you do everything that I've told you to put into practice, don't do it to be noticed by others. If you do that, you've already received your rewards. Don't announce to everyone how much you give to the needy, because when you do announce it to everyone how much you give to the needy, you're doing it for the wrong motives. And then he goes on to tackle the subject of prayer. You see, for the Jew... Although individual prayer was appropriate and called for at any time, their 
were those who were really religious among them. And what they would do is that they would have set public times of prayer, usually morning, afternoon, and evening prayers. And just like giving to the needy, Jesus points out that prayer can be perverted from the true act of what it is to one which is just for show and for everyone to look at them and go, wow, look how holy they are. You see, at set times, pious Jews would stop what they were doing and they would go to pray. Some would go to a secret place. They'd close their door and they would spend time in prayer to God. But others would try to find the most public place they could, whether that was the synagogue, whether that was a street corner, and they would pray in order that they might get noticed. They wanted public recognition for their piety. We get it today, don't we? I mean, have you ever been in a prayer meeting where there are people trying to be super spiritual when they're praying, and you open up a time of prayer, that can be in church or in a smaller prayer setting, and you get that person, don't you, who will pray with the most theological terms that they can think of, All those big, long words that are like four syllables long that they've memorized over time. And they go on and on and on and on. And you're sitting there thinking, please, please say amen in a minute. Please say amen in a minute. I can't take much more than that. So what that does for the rest of us, who generally speak in two-syllable words, particularly if you're from Portsmouth, you, you, you hear people pray like that, and you think to yourself, that's what prayer is. If that's how you're supposed to pray, with these big, long, eloquent words, and you're supposed to go on, then I just can't do that. So there's not much point in me even trying. And as a result, people's prayer lives get squashed. And as a result, people just give up when it comes to praying. So in order to help us pray, Jesus gives us a model referred to as the Lord's Prayer. But in effect, it probably should be called the Disciples' Prayer because Jesus gives this prayer to the disciples as a model to help them follow and to shape all of their prayer life. And as we study this prayer together over the course of the next few weeks, there are just a few things that I want us to note before we really dig into it. Number one, this prayer is not offered as a command to pray. If this were merely a command, this is what you have to do, and this is what you have to pray, it's just about keeping a set of rules. Rather, this is an invitation to you and to me an invitation by Jesus himself to come into an intimate prayer life with Almighty God. You have the opportunity to know God and to really know him. That is what Jesus invites you to today. Secondly, this prayer is a model that Jesus taught for our regular prayer life. It's not meant to be given as some sort of verbatim repetition that we're supposed to do every single day, although it is good to pray the Lord's Prayer word by word. I mean, if all of this was, when it comes to this prayer, was pray this and you're done, pray this and your prayer life is sorted, and we endlessly repeat it day after day, week after week, it leads to the sin of formalism, which Jesus is trying to get us away from here at the beginning of the chapter. Rather, this is a pattern to help shape our prayer life and take us into a place of deep intimacy with Almighty God's. So with that in mind, we're going to take this prayer line by line over the course of the next few weeks, and we're going to be asking ourselves the question, what does this mean for me? How can it help me in my prayer life? How can it help us as a church in our prayer life enjoy deeper intimacy with an almighty God? And Jesus says, when you pray, you should start like this. Our Father in heaven. The term Father used here in the Lord's Prayer is the word Abba. 
and it's used by children for their earthly fathers, which it, it denotes real intimacy between a, a child and their father. It's like a British child calling their father daddy. And the fact that Jesus says, use this word, when you pray, pray our father, should have a profound impact on those who are listening to it. You see, Jesus is the unique son of God. And what he does is he gives this invitation to those who want it and those who follow to participate with him on the same level of intimacy with almighty God. And this is the first key I want to say today to an effective prayer life. Because your understanding of who God is will actually shape every area of your life, especially the way you pray. How you view God will affect how you relate to God. Some people have all kinds of images of God in their heads, whether they would say it out loud or whether it's just kind of back in the subconscious somewhere. But we have all kinds of images that we have built up of God over time. Some people see God as this kind of overbearing policeman who is kind of there waiting, watching, ready to pounce for any kind of mistake that you're going to do and then batter you over the head with his truncheon. Some people have this view of God of this kind of bearded fellow in the sky, you know, kind of a granddad's kind of figure. And it doesn't really matter what we do or what we believe or what we say or how much we really participate because, oh, you know, granddad loves us. We can wrap him around our little finger. He's just that lovely old man in the sky. You see, what you think about God is probably the most important thing about you as a Christian. Because ultimately, it will shape everything about what you believe. And the way Jesus tells us to commune with God and to relate to him is like addressing him as father. And even that's a tough idea for some, isn't it? Because for some people, when you talk about father, actually, the term father holds a lot of issues. Some people have had incredibly bad relationships with their earthly father. Maybe their earthly father has been abusive. Maybe their earthly father has been absent. Maybe their earthly father just didn't really care about them. And as a result, they say, well, if that's what God is like, I don't want anything to do with him because I can't relate to him. But let me tell you today, God is not a reflection of your earthly father. He is not your earthly father blown up onto a bigger scale. Even those in this room who have had good relationships with their dads will tell you that their dads are not perfect and they have not always got things right. God is not a reflection of your earthly father. He is the perfection of your earthly father. He is the one who will never leave you nor forsake you. He will never give up on you. He always has your best interests at heart. He longs for a deep, close and intimate relationship with you. This is our God. And because that is true, We can know things about God and we can understand elements of his character. For instance, God always will give you what you need and not what you deserve. Psalm 103, 10 to 12 says this, He does not deal with you according to your sins, nor does he repay you according to your iniquities. But as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love towards those who fear him. Why does God do that? Because the good news is today that Jesus Christ came and Jesus paid the price for what we deserve, for all of our sins, for all of our wrongdoings, for all of our mess-ups, for all of our failures, for all of our mistakes, past, present, and future. 
And just as we see in the account of the prodigal son, you know, I'm sure you know the story. It's a story that Jesus told of a man who went to his dad one day and he says, Dad, you're dead to me. Just give me my inheritance and I'll be on my way and you won't see me again. And the father's heartbroken and he gives him the inheritance. And the man goes off and he goes and spends the inheritance on wild living. He throws parties, he has friends, everything seems brilliant until the money runs out. And when the money runs out, the friends leave him. They go off in their opposite directions and he's left broken, friendless, and no food. And he ends up getting a job feeding pigs, desiring what pigs are eating. And as he's doing this job one day, he thinks to himself, you know what, even the servants in my father's house have more food than this. I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to beg him for forgiveness. And I'm going to say, listen, just make me a servant in your house. So that's what the man does. He goes back and as he's walking, he's preparing an I'm sorry speech in his head. Unbeknown to him, the father has stood at the porch of his house every single day, just looking out, waiting, hoping, longing that his son is going to come back. And then one day, as he stood there looking, he sees a dot on the horizon. It looks like it could be a person. Having a son, can it? He gets a bit nearer and he starts to make out some facial features. It is my son. And when he recognizes his son, he runs as fast as he can. And before the son can get out his I'm sorry speech, the dad has put a cloak on his back, a ring on his finger. He tells the servants to kill the fattest cow that they have because they're going to have a party. And he says, my son was dead, but now he is alive. And when we pray, this is the father that we pray to, one who longs for a relationship with his children, even when we have told him to stuff it, even when we have said we want nothing to do with you, he is there and he is waiting for us to come into relationship with him. And because of that, we have a confidence when we approach his throne. We can approach the throne of grace because of what Jesus did, and just as Jesus did, call him Abba, Father, Daddy. But if we focus simply on God as our Father, then we're at risk, I think, of becoming overly comfortable with God and possibly even slightly flippant in our relationship with him. doesn't matter if I don't really pray because my dad will understand that life is really busy right now and I've got 101 things going on and I just can't fit it all in. It doesn't matter if I don't follow wholeheartedly because it's quite tough. And actually, I don't agree with everything that's written in the Bible. So, you know... My, my dad will let me off that because he, he loves me and he, he, he thinks I'm brilliant. And yeah, he wants a relationship with me, so it doesn't matter. But there's another part of this verse that we need to focus on today. Jesus said, in this manner, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In the Bible, God often reveals his nature and his character through his names. In fact, a lot of the time in the Bible when we see people, there is something about their identity which is tied up with their name. Jacob, for instance. Jacob means heel grabber and deceiver. And we see that in the story of Jacob, that is what he became for a time. Jesus changes the name of Cephas to Peter in the New Testament because he wanted his name to reflect something of the character in which he was molding him into and how he intended to use him. And the primary way that God reveals to us who he is and what his character is like in the Old Testament is through the name Yahweh. In Exodus 
chapter 3, we see a man named Moses have this extraordinary encounter with the Almighty God. He sees this bush which is burning, but it's not burning up. So he thinks to himself, I'm going to go and see what is going on. And when he gets there, he meets with Yahweh himself. And it's there in this awesome encounter that God begins to tell him how he is going to use him and what he is going to do. And Moses tries all sorts of ways to get out of it and wriggle out of it. And one of the things Moses says to God in this encounter is, well, if I go to Egypt and, and do the things you say that you want me to do to release the people from slavery, if I do that, what, what happens if they ask me what your name is? I don't know your name, so I can't really go because, you know, I don't know these things about you. And God turns around and he says, my name is I am who I am, which means Yahweh. It can be translated, I will be who I will be. It expresses something of the sovereignty, his power, his majesty. It highlights something of the fact that he is the one who is on the throne. He is the one who is in control, and he is the one who knows what he is doing. And the term hallow in the prayer that we have just read means to sanctify or to set apart. So when we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We are reminded that he is our father and he is the one who causes all things to be and he is the one who knows, so, who knows what he is doing and is on the throne. But it's so much more than that. Someone put it like this. When Jesus petitions God to hallow his name, he is asking that God act in such a way which visibly demonstrates his holiness and his glory. How does God visibly demonstrate his holiness and his glory? By creating a holy people. A people who are wholeheartedly set apart for him, who desire to live for him in every area of their lives. On a different occasion, we see in the Bible that Jesus prayed. And Jesus prayed for his followers in John chapter 17. And this is what we read. My prayer is not that you take them out of this world, but you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into this world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. The term sanctify in the prayer that Jesus prayed is the same term in the Greek which is translated hallowed here in Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer. So Jesus specifically asked for his disciples who would believe in his message that God will make them holy as he is holy. So the request that we read in the the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name, at the very beginning of this pattern of prayer, Jesus teaches, helps us to recognize that he is in control, he knows what he is doing, but there is also a commitment on our part, that we will be holy just as he is holy. It's a commitment for you and for me to commit ourselves to Almighty God again, to his ways and his life of holiness. As I bring this sermon into close this morning, I want us to catch a glimpse of who God is again. He is today your loving, heavenly Father. You have access to him 24-7, 365 days a year, but he is also this holy, awesome God above anything that you or I can imagine. And he calls his followers today to a life of holiness too. I love that quote from the lion witch in the wardrobe which says this Aslan is a lion the lion the great lion oh said Susan 
I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He is the king, I tell you. Our father, who art in heaven, is he this cuddly bearded man in the sky? No, he's not. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. He is the holy one, the alpha and the omega. And he's good. And he's your father. And he is my father. So as we embark on this time of looking at this prayer together, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, let me challenge you this morning. How is your prayer life right now? And I'm not talking about your public prayer life, your prayer meeting kind of prayer life, where you can belt out a five-minute whopper, which everyone's going to think, wow, isn't they ho- aren't they holy? I'm talking about your private, behind-closed-doors prayer life, your secret prayer life which only you and God's know about. Maybe you're here today and you're someone who really struggles with prayer. Maybe if you're honest, you can't even remember the last time you prayed on your own in a room, just you and God's. That's okay. The Bible tells us that his mercies are new every morning. And you can start today. You can commit yourself to that way of holiness again today. You can commit yourself to a deep and intimate relationship with him. My exhortation for myself, first and foremost, but for us as a church, is today, let's commit ourselves to being a people of prayer and a people of holiness, recognizing that he is holy, and that's who he calls us to be. Why don't we stand? We're going to lift up the name of God together in this place today. Let's catch a glimpse of him this morning. Let's catch a glimpse of his glory. Let's catch a glimpse of his holiness. Let's catch a glimpse of our Father in heaven. Let's lift up his name, church.